we are at a place where we have the first truly global crisis we've ever been in. So the question becomes some, can we actually cooperate as a species? So far, the evidence is not overwhelmingly great, but, but you know, it's not hopeless either. This is It's Okay That You're Not Okay, and I'm your host, Megan Devine. This week on the show, climate change. Climate change is something that affects every single one of us, and it is really hard to look at. It's such a great temptation to like shut our eyes to what's happening. It's overwhelming. This week on the show, climate activist and author Bill McKibben on facing the reality of the climate crisis, understanding what needs to change, and what you can do not just to change the course of humanity and the planet, but to actually feel more hopeful and connected as this all unfolds. This episode is a deep, kind-hearted conversation about truly terrifying things, and I hope you'll lean into it with me. It's coming up right after this first break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught. A history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, 
I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, one quick note. While we cover a lot of emotional, relational territory in each and every episode, this show is not a substitute for skilled support with a licensed mental health provider or for professional supervision related to your work. Hey friends, you made it. In my mind, a lot of people would be like tempted to skip this episode after hearing the opening clip. So I'm really glad you're still here. The climate crisis is just so overwhelming. And I try to keep my eyes open to so many difficult things, as we know, but even I find myself shutting down with each successive catastrophe, especially when it's set against the backdrop of corporations and governments who simply do not care. It's a lot. I saw something on Twitter the other day that suggested that having emotional reactions to climate catastrophes should be treated as, quote, a mental illness. Like... Sorry your hometown is flooded and wildfire smoke turned the sky orange, but you're resilient. Work on your own coping skills. Like, having emotional reactions to climate catastrophes should be treated as, quote, mental illness. Like, there is so much wrong with that statement. Our personal resilience is not the problem here. And I know this is a much bigger topic than we had time to get into with today's guest, but... If you're having a complex set of feelings associated with the ongoing, unfolding climate crisis, you are definitely not alone. Not having any feelings about it would be weird. Anyway, we definitely get into just how dire things are in this conversation, but we also get into hope, like real, tangible, actionable hope that is not like wishful thinking dressed up in fairy robes, you know, like none of that stuff, like actual hope with somebody who has been immersed in the work of climate change for decades. Bill McKibben is an American environmentalist, author, and journalist who has written extensively on the impact of global warming. His books include The End of Nature, About Climate Change, and Falter, Has the Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out?, That one's about the state of environmental challenges facing humanity. He's a contributing writer to The New Yorker and founder of Third Act, which organizes people over the age of 60 for progressive change. That Third Act is a super cool initiative you're going to hear us talk about in our conversation. There's so much goodness in this episode. And if you, like me, tend to turn away because things are too much, be sure to listen through to the end for your questions to carry with you. They're really good this time. All right, let's get to my conversation with author and activist Bill McKibben. So I am so glad to have you here with me today. I I know that you don't necessarily do a whole whole lot of interviews, so I'm, I'm just really honored to have you with me here today. Well, Megan, it's a pleasure to be with you, in part to be able to say thank you for your good and important work. And it really is, it's a pleasure to get to chat. Thank you so much. Okay, so there are so many places that we could begin our conversation. I've spent the last three days 
reading your books and reading your articles and watching you speak. Um, we were talking before we got rolling that I was recently visiting my folks and a, a lot of that time I was spent sort of immersed in your work. And I'm going to say something you've probably heard a lot, but spending so much time in conversations and in material about climate change, I found myself feeling really defeated. Mm. Is that sort of a common thing you hear a lot when people are sort of engaging with your work? I don't know about defeated necessarily, but definitely mm. scared and upset. I'm doing nothing to sell books, I can tell. And that's, you know, I'm afraid that's appropriate. It is a scary and upsetting thing. We're talking about by far the biggest thing humans have ever done, by far the most dangerous thing humans have ever done. Uh, we're talking about something that is now playing out in real time, very much in front of us. There's a great temptation to shut one's eyes. And sadly, that's the one thing we can't afford because we desperately need as many people as possible at work on this. If we're to have any chance of really, not of stopping global warming, too late for that, but of stopping it short of the place where it cuts civilization off at the knees, which is what's going to happen if we don't get our act together quickly. Yeah. And I've read that you've said that those, like the doomsday descriptions of what scientists projected back in the 80s, right, when we kind of first started talking about what was then, what was it then? Greenhouse? We call it greenhouse the greenhouse emissions. effect, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that those predictions that they made back in the 80s were too conservative given what's unfolded since. That's right. I mean, I wrote the first book about all of this back in 1989. So in many cases, I was just about the first reporter, first writer to get to sit and talk with the climate scientists who work on it. Scientists are, by their nature, conservative. They underestimate rather than overestimate. It's just the kind of nature of the profession. They were exactly right. I mean, eerily accurate about how much the temperature was going to go up. Um, it's gone up on pretty much exactly the curve that people like James Hansen, the great NASA physicist, first predicted. But they underestimated how much damage that increase in temperature would do. Because we'd never done this experiment before, at least with humans around to watch. So, so far we've increased the temperature somewhat more than a degree Celsius, let's say two degrees Fahrenheit in round numbers which doesn't sound like that much. I mean, it was 60 degrees when I walked the dog this morning. If it's 58 degrees when I walk the dog tonight, my body won't be able to tell the difference. So you're better, better off thinking about it in other units. The amount of extra heat that we trap near the planet every day because of the carbon we've put there by burning fossil fuel is the heat equivalent of about 400,000 Hiroshima-sized explosions daily. Wow. And when you know that, then it's easier to understand how big, big things have happened and sooner than we thought they were going to. We've melted most of the sea ice in the summer Arctic. We now see massive melt underway in the Antarctic. These are things that in the late 1980s, scientists hoped we might not see till the latter mm. part of this century, but we're seeing them already. And we're seeing things as a result that we didn't really predict would happen. For instance, the jet stream 
works off the difference in temperature between the equator and the poles. There's less difference now, so the jet stream is acting in super funky ways. And we get these long periods of either drought or flood, depending on which side you get stuck on and so on. So the damage that we've seen already, very, very substantial. The biggest wildfires we've ever seen, the biggest rainstorms in human history, on and on and on. They're already big, big problems. Sadly, the real danger is that we're currently on a path to raise the temperature about five degrees or six degrees Fahrenheit, not the two degrees we have so far. And if we do that, it won't be three times as bad. It'll be worse than that because the damage won't be on a kind of linear scale. It'll be on an exponential one. You go past certain tipping points that then everything shifts. Once there's no ice left in the summer Arctic, the world gets very, very different, for instance. The abstract nature of it, right, until it becomes personal, until you're personally affected by it, it doesn't seem real. And certainly with floods and fires, fires showing up in places where they haven't been experienced and floods showing up, like it's starting to get personal, which is, you know, honestly, it's too late, right? Like too late not to do anything, but like it's this weird human thing that we don't take something seriously until it impacts us personally and directly. You know, when I wrote that first book, Megan, I was 28. Mm. And my theory of change was people will read my book and then they will change. And truthfully, a lot of people read it. It came out in 24 languages. It was a bestseller all over the place. You know, it's like your books. But at least in big political questions, people don't just read books and change. There were a lot of forces beginning and ending in a sense with the power of the fossil fuel industry that kept us from making the changes that we could have made early on. Those changes, had we made them early on, would have been fairly small and they would have gotten us out of an awful lot of trouble. Now, sadly, we've waited so long into this mess that the changes necessarily have to be big and disruptive. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which are the group of climate scientists that the UN assembles to offer their collective wisdom on all of this, uh, said two years ago that we had until 2030 to cut emissions in half on this planet if we wanted to meet the targets, the temperature targets that we'd set in Paris just a few years ago. Well, by my watch, uh, 2030 is, what, six years and seven months away. That's an awful lot of work to cram into that period of time. If we'd had 36 years, if we'd started back when we got our first warnings, then it would have been a lot easier. But as you point out, human nature doesn't necessarily work that way. And the self-interest of oil companies definitely doesn't work that way. Yeah. I, you know what I don't get? And I, this has bugged me forever. But like you said, the self-interest of the oil companies and, and fossil fuels and those sorts of things and the people who draft and vote for legislation that continues to damage the planet and communities, like, do they not realize they live here too? <laughs> I think that they're, if they stop to think about it, their calculation, at least their internal psychological calculation is, if I make enough money, I can build a wall of greenbacks around my uh, 
house, my family, whatever it is I care about, and, and we'll be okay. But motivated reasoning is a powerful, powerful thing. You know more about it than I do. Uh, and I think it's also possible for people to convince themselves that all scientists are engaged in some conspiracy theory or whatever it is, if, if it's in their momentary self-interest to do that. Yeah. In The End of Nature, Bill, you wrote that there is a tendency at every important but difficult crossroad to pretend that it's not really there, that we're not really at a crossroad. Right. And I, I think that's, you know, what we were just talking about, that there's this like psychic doubling in a way that happens, both for industries and, and legislators who vote against Earth's best interests and our best interests, but also people who sort of shut down in the face of increasing danger. Is that true? And do you think that's true in people's just like personal lives, too, when they're confronted with things in their own personal lives that are like that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, it's a it's this desperate desire to believe that we're okay, that we have some control over our safety and our the safety of our loved ones, mm-hmm. right? For me, it's that same mechanism. This is this is my this is my griefy Rosetta Stone for all of life is that we like to believe that we will be okay and the people we care about will be okay, right? That's why there's so much shame and judgment. Like when you hear that somebody's child was killed by a drunk driver, right? Like I wouldn't have been on the road that late at night or I would have paid more attention to the road or I'm a better driver so I would have been able to evade it. Like all of these if-then statements that Mm -hmm. we can say that prove to us that 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 kind of pain would never show up on my doorstep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that, going back to what we were talking about a moment ago with climate change, when it is, quote unquote, just Haiti getting yeah. swamped, when it is just Central Africa hitting another massive drought, like when it is away from our gaze, we can tell ourselves that we're safe and everybody we love is safe. And for me, it's that same mechanism, right? Well, it's that it, same grief avoidance. This explains, among other things, yeah, what brilliant psychologists, the marketers and PR guys that the fossil fuel industry set to work beginning about 1990, we now know how smart they were. They, they hired a bunch of the people who used to work for the tobacco industry. Mm. And the, the message that they brought was the same. The science is inconclusive. We don't know for sure what's going to happen. And that wasn't true. The science actually was conclusive, but I think it was psychologically powerful for a lot of people, just the thought that maybe we didn't actually have to deal with this, the next generation or the one after that or something would be the ones who would get to deal with it. Yeah, deferred maintenance, yeah. right? This is why it's so hard to get people to get their colonoscopies and get, like get their, like yeah. do stuff, preventative care, like preventative action doesn't sell. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I started the first with seven college students, what became the first big global grassroots climate campaign about 20 years ago. We called it 350.org. Now, the name came from what the scientists told us was the most carbon we could safely have in the atmosphere, 350 parts per million. We chose the name part because we wanted to organize globally and we figured Arabic numerals work better than English words. But when we chose it, people said, oh, it's a bad name because it's depressing. We're already past 350, you know? And I said, well, in the first place, honesty has its virtues too. And in the second place, it strikes me that 
it's sort of like going to the doctor. If the doctor says, you know, keep eating like this and someday your cholesterol will be too high, you know, you'd stop for a cheeseburger on the way home. But if the doctor says, huh, you're already in that zone where people have heart attacks, you know, you might have had a small stroke already. That's the day where people say, what pill should I take? <laughs> you know, right. maybe it was a way to make it a little more real. At any event, it, it worked pretty well. We, we've organized 20,000 demonstrations in every country on earth except North Korea at this point. So mm, that's amazing. And I think also, like, it gives people a goal instead of like everything is terrible, everything is dire, we have to act fast, like all of which is all accurate. I, I just feel like we interpret that sort of stuff as it's already too late and collapse into despair and overwhelm. Absolutely. Like most people who do this kind of work, and for me, it's just volunteer work. I'm a self-taught organizer, but I've sort of helped lead very large campaigns, the campaign against the Keystone Pipeline that was Big Oil's first defeat, this fossil fuel divestment campaign that's now at about $40 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested from fossil fuel. And one of the things, the psychological things that I think I learned was that you had to have a goal that was on the one hand plausible, you could make a story about how you might reach it, and also plausibly large enough to matter. You had to have a story about why it actually would make a difference. It's quite easy to get people for a little while to do really easy things, change your light bulbs. But people have pretty good built-in bullshit detector too. That you know, after a little while, you're like, yeah, I really don't think changing this light bulb is going to defeat climate change. And and so either you go look for something more useful to do, or you you know avoid the subject altogether. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that there's nothing I can do because the corporations and the greed are bigger than us and too much to battle. And honestly, like with all of the cascading disasters, with climate disasters, with gun violence, with like with just all of the stuff that we're sort of bombarded with in news feeds and in communities, like it is really hard not to get ground down by this. Yes. And that's why it's a great antidote to actually have a movement with campaigns that matter, that people are you're working side by side with. For me, it's the most effective antidote to what is unavoidable grief, anxiety, all those things. But I don't know what'll, I mean, I hope I don't find out, but I don't know what it'll feel like when we reach the point where if we don't do our job well soon, where it really does just just seals our, our trajectory. That's why I, you know, continue to fight hard and why it seems urgent and why, you know, I end up, I mean, I've been to jail now going on a dozen times, I think, which is not at all how I thought my life would turn out. But I will say that once or twice there in jail, I, I felt a certain kind of um, relaxation isn't the right word, but there was nothing more I could do. I was there. I couldn't do anything. Couldn't talk to anyone. Couldn't write an email. Couldn't, you know, write a story. Couldn't do all the things I'm used to doing. Just my being there was going to have to be enough. And that was, uh, there was a, a kind of relief for, for that too, I got to say. I feel that there's a certain sort of rooted piece of being in knowing that you have taken the action you can take to this point. And at this point, 
there is no further action. Yeah. Right. Knowing that that time to act will circle back again. Yeah. You know this whole this whole conversation. I have Joanna Macy in my head. So yeah, uh, you and I were talking. Isn't she's just the best? Mm. You and I were talking before we got rolling. You live in Vermont, and I went to graduate school in Vermont. And a lot of my graduate studies were just deeply informed by Joanna Macy. And friends, we'll we'll link to Joanna Macy's work here, so you know what we're talking about. But I remember back then I was doing a lot of women's rights work and reproductive justice work and just starting to get into some environmental activism. And Joanna Macy was the only one that I found at the time really talking about the grief inherent in activism. And her whole thing was that like if we don't let ourselves feel the grief that we feel, our social justice work can't be as successful as it needs to be totally paraphrasing her, but how does that resonate for you? I think that's probably very true. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, I'm a white male of a certain era. You know, I'm an old guy. So being open about things like grief doesn't come super easy to me. I'm always grateful for my friends and colleagues for whom that can help me with that. The person I often lean on is um, the great Western writer, Terry Tempest Williams. Mm-hmm. who's one of my oldest and dearest friends, but who's <gasps> writing, uh, especially in books like Refuge. And if people are interested, she just wrote a piece. She's from Utah, and she just wrote a piece of, in the New York Times about Great Salt Lake and drying up and what that felt like. And I know it took a lot out of her to write it, and you can see it on the page. Wow. You know, somehow we need to <laughs> come to terms with that grief the thing that makes it hard is that the patient's not dead yet, you know. You're more like the doctor in the emergency room <laughs> who's, you know, it's psychologically easier to just keep running around, you know, thinking of the next trick you can try. And we're still very much in that phase. There's lots of important things we still can be doing, but there's lots of things we're not getting back to. So, you know, one way out for me is to remind myself every single day that for all the insults that it's taken, the world we live on is still incredibly beautiful and that it's not going to be more intact than it is right now. And so one of our jobs as the creature with consciousness who can look around, one of our jobs is to be out there bearing witness to its great beauty. So if I'm home, I'm out in the woods some part of every day just for that reason. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. From iHeart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get back to my conversation with Bill McKibben, I want to talk with you about getting help inside grief. You know how people say, like, maybe you should talk to someone? Well, it's not that easy. Finding skilled grief support is hard. We get a lot of messages from people wanting to speak with me directly, and we used to say no all the time because I didn't have time in the calendar. But now we are saying yes for a limited time and a limited number of people. To apply for one of the grief consultation spots on my calendar, send us an email at support at refugingrief.com or use the contact form at megandevine.co. If individual work with me is out of reach for you or that waiting list gets too long, you can still join me every month for a live Q&A at patreon.com backslash megandevine. Details on both of those options are in the show notes. All right, let's get back to the conversation. I love that you brought up Terry Tempest Williams. Along with Joanna Macy, she was one of the, the people I considered mentors to me in those early days. I love her work so, so much. We almost had her on the show. I should, I should revisit that and see what happened to that. I think it was a, I think it was a scheduling <laughs> glitch for us, but, but, and thank you for telling me about that article because I have not seen that. I will find that. And I'm just, I love her so much. To me, she straddles those realms of telling the truth about what she sees happening and what she's seen unfold in this really intimate intimate way, this intimate relationship with her home and her landscape. And 
talks about actions to take and talks about the beauty and talks about the pain of seeing what's ahead, seeing what's already changed, what's already lost and what is ahead on the chopping block. And I, I, I just, I feel like it's for me. And again, because grief is my lens through which I see most things, I feel like being afraid of what it will feel like if we truly pay attention to the devastation that has already come and the devastation that is ahead, if we truly turned our gaze to that, the grief would overwhelm us and we wouldn't be able to act. And in the face of that, it's probably not a conscious fear, but like in the face of that, we say, it's not that bad. Too many things to fight. Let me find like that we deflect ourselves to something that feels less overwhelming because that emotional visceral response would be too big for us, I think. Yeah. If you're attuned to what's going on, then there are daily opportunities for worry and grief around the world. They also come in this case with a uh, added kind of dollop of a certain kind of guilt too. Pakistan last fall had the worst flood since Noah the kind of flood you can only have in a globally warmed world where warm air holds more water vapor than cold. It just started raining in August and it did not stop. There were places, large places that got 800% of their annual rainfall in 30 days. So eight times as much rainfall as they get in a year, they got in three weeks. People live in mud houses. They work great most of the time. They're smart architecture. When it rains for three weeks without stopping, they melt away around you. 33 million people were displaced. Well, the 200 million people or so in Pakistan, they've produced way less than 1% of all the carbon in the atmosphere. The 3% of the world's population that calls itself Americans has produced about 25% of all the carbon in the atmosphere. It's, you know, the good things in our lives, big houses, cars, airplanes, so on, that have, you know, at some level caused the problems that hit all of us, but that hit the people. I mean, the iron law of global warming is the less you did to cause it, the sooner and harder you get hit. So there's some kind of guilt added on top of that. But we, we also don't seem very well built to figure out how rationally to deal with. I mean, in the same way that people are, you know, busy insisting that schools shouldn't teach about, you know, slavery or something because it's, you know, makes us feel bad. We don't quite know how to handle the fact that we owe a real debt to much of the rest of the world. And so the good news is it's a payable debt. There's a lot of things that should be giving us heart right now. In the last 10 years, scientists, engineers really have cut the cost of renewable energy 90%. We now live on a planet where the cheapest way to generate power is to point a sheet of glass at the sun. That's Hogwarts scale magic. You know, I'm a occasional Sunday school teacher. That's water into wine kind of miracle. So there's no longer a deep technological or financial obstacle to keep us from making very rapid progress at decarbonizing the earth but it would take a huge push to do it at the speed that we need to. And it would have to be a push against the extraordinary power still of the oil industry to 
keep us from, you know, keep us locked for as long as possible in their business model. One of the things that's hopeful to me is that becomes less a kind of story about dread and despair than a story about real hopeful and bright possibility. I mean, we could get our energy from heaven instead of hell. And not only would we knock the worst edge off the climate crisis, you know, maybe 9 million people a year on this planet die from breathing the combustion byproducts of fossil fuel. That's one death in five. If you've been to Delhi or Shanghai recently, it won't come as a huge surprise because you've seen what the air there is like. But really, it's true in this country, too. There's millions of cases of childhood asthma every year, mostly with black brown kids who have the ones who have to live near the highway, near the refinery, whatever it is. We, we don't need any of that. We can get rid of that and in short order. Not only that, depending on a resource that only is available in a few places like coal and gas and oil, means that the people who control those places get way too much power. So, you know, in our country, that was our biggest oil and gas barons, the Koch brothers who took their winnings and used them to degrade our democracy. In Europe, it's Vladimir Putin who's used his winnings to launch a land war in Europe in the 21st century. We don't need that. The sun and the wind are everywhere. After 700,000 years of combustion, <laughs> humans could give up their habit of setting stuff on fire and we'd be you know, quickly better off. So that's a really beautiful story to tell. Yeah. I think we get trapped in the, the binary, right? Like if I have to give up my comforts, my transportation autonomy, <laughs> yeah. uh, all of those things, I'm not going to be able to live well if I make choices that let other people survive. I didn't really say that very well, but it's like, it's this binary, right? Yeah. Either or. And also like how I was talking about this with an investment broker going over like, what, you know, what things do you invest in? And I was like, it, it all comes down to how much of other people's suffering are you willing to tolerate for your own gain? Yeah. And that's like, that sounds really crappy, but this really is sort of the equation that we have a lot, right? Like understanding the downstream effects of our choices and not that you're a terrible person for making those choices. And I, I think this is where it gets tricky. And, and you brought up how much communities of color are impacted by climate change. This is sort of true across the board, right? Like if we start paying attention to the impact of our choices, then we're going to have to be uncomfortable. And we interpret that as like, if I do the work to make you safer, then I am less safe, right? If I do the work to include you, that means that I'm excluded. Yes. And there's just this like, such a scarcity model of community and existence and consumption. Like one of us has to win and the other one has to lose and that's not serving us. The good news is that technology has done some of this work for us. I mean, look, I live in a house that runs on solar panels and I have a car that connects up to those solar panels and it works fine. You know, it's as good as any car I ever had, maybe better. I have an induction cooktop in the kitchen. It doesn't cost any more than my gas. It costs a lot less once you, you know, to operate. We have a heat pump in the basement instead of a furnace. It works just fine. So some of these changes are easy enough to make now. But you do have to be willing to make them. 
I think we also have to be willing to be honest about the degree to which we need to take some of our winnings that we've accumulated in the in the rich parts of the world by burning fossil fuel and let people in the rest of the world have some small share of them so that they don't drown whatever. I mean, we are at a place where we have the first truly global crisis we've ever been in. So the question becomes some, can we actually cooperate as a species? So far, the evidence is not overwhelmingly great, but, but you know, it's not hopeless either. I, I, I take some um, solace from the fact that the only other existential crisis we've faced, the one that comes from nuclear weapons, we've actually avoided. Since we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, no one else has done it. I mean, knock on wood, but there's some sign that we're capable of sometimes rising to the occasion. But in this case, it definitely requires people working together. And that's why this movement building has been so interesting. One of the things that's interesting for me about this avoidance sort of stuff that we've been discussing a little is that, you know, most of the work has been done by young people. I started 350.org with seven college students. We had this massive divestment campaign that was mostly run by kids in university around the world. When they got out of school, they wanted to keep working. So they formed the Sunrise Movement that brought us the Green New Deal. The junior high and high school kids who kind of have followed Greta Thunberg, who's one of my favorite people to work with. I really, really adore her. And her embrace of her autism as a kind of superpower has been ennobling to watch. But she And she'd be the first to say, look, there's 10,000 Gretas, and there really are around the world. And they have 10 million followers. That's how many kids were out on school strike in 2019 before the pandemic hit. So kids are doing their job. At a certain point, I'd heard one too many people my age say, well, it's up to the next generation to solve these problems, which strikes me as nonsense of the highest order. I mean, look, they're doing the leading. Sure, they're, you know, they have a lot at stake, but a, it's not their fault, so it's kind of ignoble to you know take the world's biggest problem and dump it on the laps of junior high school students. But it's also highly impractical. And for all their energy and intelligence and idealism, young people lack the structural power to make change on the scale we need in the time that we have, which is why in the last few years, my volunteer work has been organizing older people. We've started this thing called Third Act, which organizes people over the age of 60 for progressive action. And I'm really relieved and pleased to tell you that people have been lining up to go to work. And I think it has a lot to do with psychologies of various kinds. One of them is political scientists have long said that people get more conservative as they age, and you could posit reasons for that. But if you're in your 60s or 70s or 80s now, your first act was in this period of epic social and cultural and political transformation. And you know you were around when we started taking women seriously in public life. You were there at the apex of the civil rights movement. Probably you marched on the first Earth Day because 20 million Americans were in the streets that day, 1970. 
And so there's a kind of muscle memory or a kind of collective people when people look back on their youth, the thing that they're proud of is having been part of that. So that's half of it. But the other half seems to be, and this is seems to me deeply psychologically healthy. As people get nearer the exit than the entrance, it really feels to me like they're beginning to take things like legacy and solidarity and things seriously in a different way. You know, your legacy is the planet you leave behind for the people you love the most. And people take very seriously the thought that they're leaving behind a planet that's shabbier than the one they were born onto. I don't know, it's a lot of fun to work with older people like me because there's a little less of the kind of, um, you know, I have to be in front or kind of dominance. We, we, did a, we did a big demonstration against these banks, the four big American banks, Chase City, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, that are the four biggest lenders to the fossil fuel industry. We did about 100 demonstrations. We shut them down for a day across the country with people doing sit-ins in rocking chairs, you know, all over the place. And the, the big banner that we had uh, where I was, this big banner that just said fossils against fossil fuels. Um, it was good to see people who could, uh, you know, laugh at themselves a little bit and at the same time understand that they had an important role to play in trying to set things right. The whole thing has felt at the very least psychologically healthy to me and mm. I've been enjoying it a lot. Yeah, there's something so powerful in that community. One of my favorite quotes from you is the human game is a team sport and finding finding ways to come together in this. One of the things that that kind of irks me kind of is 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 not a big enough word, but the the infighting Right yep. between the generations, you've got the younger yep. generation saying, you created this world for us, you jerks. Yep. And the older generation saying, it wasn't my fault. You know, I was part of the civil rights movement. Yep. Like, it wasn't my fault. It was the corporations. And instead of coming together in our love for the world, in our care for the world, instead of joining together with that, we get into this you screwed up, you're not doing enough. I think that's right. And on the deepest level, yeah. the key dividing line in my life and I think in the world was the moment when in political terms, probably with the election of Ronald Reagan, when we decided that individualism was the most important thing, mm -hmm. that markets were going to solve all problems, that your job was to get rich. It was his pal, Maggie Thatcher, who said, there is no such thing as society. There are only individual men and women. So two things happened as a result of that. One is that, you know, we melted the North Pole because what do you know, markets didn't solve all problems. But the second thing that happened was that people got more and more and more isolated and alienated and off by themselves. You're the one who really understands this stuff, but it strikes me powerfully. We are socially evolved primates. It wasn't that long ago that we were all sitting on the floor of the savanna, picking lice out of each other's fur, you know, and just the command to go off by yourselves and be good consumers just seems to have set us up for so much unhappiness 
Um, and it's and, and one of it's not the reason we build movements. We build movements so that we can keep the planet from overheating, or you know, keep black people from having to be you know killed by policemen or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. A nice side effect of building movements is that people end up working together, and that's what we're designed to do. I think. Yeah, it intersects really cleanly with Cigna did a study. I think it's 2018 or 19. I should know because I cite it all the time, but they found that loneliness is a bigger public health risk than smoking. (laughs) Right? And, you know, where I go with that is like, why are people lonely? And we're lonely because we we can't tell each other the truth about what we're feeling or or what's going on for us because we're, we're sort of hit with, oh, you think you have it bad. Other people have it worse or I have it worse. And this really, like, this shows up in what you and I have just been talking about, right? Like in the climate catastrophe or that individualism and thinking that it's you against the world. And the flip side of that, of you can't get help unless you've exhausted every possible aspect of doing it for yourself, right? God helps those who help themselves. This sort of rugged individualism lays the stage for cataclysmic devastation on social, political, environmental fronts. And what I hear you saying, yay, is that community and connection is the answer. Absolutely. And it may be the answer to winning those fights, but it's definitely the answer to how to be alive at a tough moment. You know, it's what we want to do at some level. I mean, to to the funniest degree. I now have lots of older people coming up and telling me that it's on their bucket list to get arrested. And could I help, you know, and things. <laughs> sure, I know how to do that. Um, sure. Uh, but it's pack a toothbrush. It's um it's powerful stuff. And I do think, and this is the place where I allow myself to be optimistic. I do think that if we get through the next 20 years, which are going to be very tough, that humans will find far more interesting ways to amuse themselves going forward. I think that the chances that, you know, 75 years from now, all we can think of to do is, you know, go to the mall or go shopping online or, you know, whatever it is, that seems slight to me. We're a really interesting species. We wandered into this enticing cul-de-sac of kind of high consumer consumerism and it'll take us a little while, but eventually we'll get out of it. So my job, our job is to try and make sure we get through those 20 or 30 years so that the people who come after us have some realistic chance at building a more interesting world. Mm. I love that. I feel like you've answered my closing question multiple times, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. You wrote in Falter, a writer doesn't owe a reader hope. The only obligation is honesty. You've written about hope in a bunch of different ways. So for today, knowing what you know and living what you've lived, what does hope look like for you today? Yeah, it's always a hard question because I don't, there are days when I don't even have, you know, when the end thing that gets me through the day is just, you know, anger at Exxon or something like that. And sometimes that's a reasonable fuel (laughs) to get you going. But the hope is that we don't walk off this particular cliff eyes closed. 
you know, it feels to me like climate change, the climate crisis is a really interesting test of whether or not the big brain was a good adaptation or not. It can get us in a lot of trouble. Can it get us out? And my intuition is that it's actually going to be less the size of the brain that matters than the size of the heart that it's attached to. And we shall see. I have hope in most of the people around me and the people that I know that they are of good heart. And sometimes that hope is strained and tested. <laughs> of, it's been a not such a great few years, you know, and I don't pretend to understand, uh, you know, some of the things that we see in our society now. But that's where my hope was, that in the end, there are enough people of good heart that we will figure out how to work together through this. Thank you so much for being here, not just on the show, but in the world. Back at you. Enormous mm. thanks for your good work. And this has really been a fun conversation, a deep one. I, I've thought about things I hadn't really thought about before, which is the mark of a good interlocutor. So. Excellent. I am so glad to hear that. It's been such an honor to talk with you. Now we're going to link to your books in the show notes. We will give people a link to the third act, and we're going to add in some of the resources and the other authors that we mentioned in the show. All right, everybody, stay tuned for your questions to carry with you coming up right after this break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. 
That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, I leave you with some questions to carry with you until we meet again. Now, you know what really struck me in this conversation? Just how hard it is to really face the climate crisis. Like, it is so overwhelming. I know that sticking my head in the sand is only going to hasten the world I don't want, but I still have a hard time maintaining my gaze on how serious, how dangerous this all is. Like There are so many things we need to fight for, but if we no longer have an inhabitable planet, all of that fighting and all of our celebration, it just, it just stops, which is a little light thought to carry with you for the day, but that's not your questions to carry with you because at the same time that I'm turning to face how dangerous and serious this all is, like this conversation made me feel a little braver not less overwhelmed, but more hopeful, more able to see this as the experiment in big heartedness, as Bill said towards the end of our time together. Curiosity and engagement with the experiment feels a lot more sustainable and a lot less overwhelming than those other two options of like collapsing into despair on one hand or pretending there's absolutely nothing wrong on the other. I hope you feel the same after this conversation today a little more willing to sustain your gaze, a little more willing to take action in ways that feel right for you, a little more willing to open the conversation with your people, your friends, your families, about all the feelings inside the catastrophes facing us as individuals and as a global community. It is such a massive grief and such a massive chance to be together, to band together inside it. So how about you? I would love to hear how not only this show affected you, but how grief and climate change come together in you. It is truly something we do not talk about enough. Everybody's going to take something different from this show, but I do hope you found something to hold on to. If you want to tell me how today's show felt for you or you have thoughts on what we covered, let me know. Tag at Refuge and Grief on all the social platforms so I can hear how this conversation affected you. Follow the show at It's OK Pod on TikTok and Refuge and Grief everywhere else to see video clips from the show. But there are no video clips from this one because my guest lives in rural Vermont and the internet was not strong enough for video. So you're not going to see videos, but you will see videos from every other guest. Use the hashtag It's OK Pod on all of the platforms so not only I can find you, but other people can too. 
none of us are entirely okay, and it's time we start talking about that together. Yeah? It's okay that you're not okay. You're in good company. That's it for this week. Remember to subscribe to the show and leave a review, please. Your reviews are really special to me, and I love to read them. Coming up next week on the pod, Dr. Pooja Lakshmin on the ridiculous idea that self-care can solve all of your problems. Follow the show on your favorite platforms so you don't miss an episode. Want more on these topics? Look, grief is everywhere. As my dad says, daily life is full of everyday grief that we don't call grief, including grief around climate change. Learning how to talk about all of that without cliches or platitudes or dismissive statements or telling people to be more resilient, like those are important skills for everyone. Get help to have those conversations with trainings, professional resources, and my best-selling book, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, at megandevine.co. It's Okay That You're Not Okay, the podcast is written and produced by me, Megan Devine. Executive producer is Amy Brown, co-produced by Elizabeth Fazio, logistical and social media support from Micah, post-production and editing by Houston Tilly. Our intern this season is Hannah Goldman, music provided by Wave Crush, and background noise provided by... <sighs> the new collection of toys with digital sound effects spilling over my backyard fence from the neighbors. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.